0: Now, as we get started today, I believe there's something that we can all agree on this morning. You tell me if I'm right. We're living in uncertain times. We agree that, right? I see the head shakes. Everybody know that. I mean, it's as simple as this. It's as simple as uncertain. When you meet somebody, you have all this that runs through your head. Uh, is it okay for me to put my hand out and give them a handshake? Is this somebody that I need to be wearing my mask when I meet or not? Is this somebody that I have to make sure I stay six feet away from or not? And so you meet people and immediately there's uncertainty in your life. What do I do in these moments? When it comes even to the virus and how do we treat it, there's uncertainty. There are those folks who have their statistics that say, hey, statistically, when I look at this virus, this is not a big deal, and we're just making too much out of this. And then there's other people that have their statistics that say, this is a very serious deal. We need to really take it very cautiously. And so you look and say, we're uncertain. How is it that we even approach this thing? When we think even about the church, we know there's uncertainty with the church. When we look and say so many people have not attended since COVID hit, and we wonder, and we look to the future, and when we can say when a sense of normalcy comes back, how many of those people are going to return and how many of them are not? We don't know. It's uncertain times. But here's something I think we also can admit. This is not the first time we've faced uncertainty, is it? That's been a part of life. I remember as a child, at least this is my memory of being a child, I remember being uncertain if we were going to be in a nuclear war when I was a kid. It seemed like we always had this fear that Russia was going to um, launch these nuclear bombs at us, and we had these symbols that were on the walls for fallout shelters. Y'all remember that? And we were always uncertain. Well, what's tomorrow going to bring? Is there even going to be a tomorrow? And I'm just wondering, is tomorrow on the corner? So we've had those, okay? But life is full of uncertainty. We have those uncertain moments. But here's what we should know. That even in the midst of uncertainty, when we're with God, we don't need to be overwhelmed. Right? As we begin looking at God's unbroken plans, as we've been looking at how God is working in the children of Israel, the last two weeks we looked at how God worked in the lives of His people, and most specifically, how He was delivering them using Moses as His servant. Using Moses, who many refer to still today as the deliverer of Israel. However, as we make it to the book of Joshua, we see we're a great time of uncertainty came to Israel. And why was this uncertain time? Because Moses, their leader, dies. Look at Joshua 1, 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, go arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Now, let's pause. When I read these verses, my first reaction is to question a little bit of why the Lord reminds Joshua that Moses is dead. Here's my guess is, Joshua knew when Moses died. Don't you think so? I mean, this has been my leader, I don't think it. So why did God come and remind Joshua, Joshua, Moses has died? Well, really, it's this. It's God coming to to, to Joshua and say, Joshua, it's now time for you to step up. You see, I'm sure even for Joshua, there was a moment where when Moses died, he's like, well, what do I do now? I mean, I've been helping Moses all this time. I've been following his leadership for all these years. And so what do I do now? It was uncertain for him. But God clearly is telling Joshua, it's time for you to step up and continue the work that God was doing in the lives of the people of Israel through Moses. Listen, God's plan wasn't dead just because Moses has died. I believe we all can see where the death of the person who had been leading you could cause some uncertain moments. But God was saying, I am undeterred. My plans continued. You may be uncertain, God was saying to Joshua, but I want you to know, I am not and I've got a plan. You just need to carry it out. You see, God, I'm sure, was aware of the Israelites' uncertainty. He explicitly Joshua's uncertainty. Therefore, it's important what we see God says to Joshua. Look what he says in verse 3. He said, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So what's the first thing he does in this uncertainty? He reminds Joshua of his promises. He reaffirms them. He was letting Joshua know that the promised land was still going to be theirs. But did you notice something? That when God reiterates this promise to Joshua, he spoke in the past tense. He didn't say the promised land will be yours. He says, I have given you the promised land. God spoke in past tense. Why? Because at this point, listen, the promises may not have been a fully realized reality for the children of Israel, but it was a sure thing. It was going to happen. The promised land was a guarantee. This, again, was a reminder that God keeps his promises, which is reassuring in uncertain times. But God didn't end there. Look at what he told Joshua in verse 5. He said, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Here he reaffirms his presence to Joshua. You know, last week he looked at how God dwells with his people. And here God was simply reminding Joshua that the promises that he had made were going to come true, not because of who Joshua was and because of his great ability to lead. It wasn't going to happen because of the Israelites and their great strength, but the promises that God had made was going to come true because of who God was and the fact that God was going to be there with him and that the strength of the promises was his presence with them to bring, listen, victory in their life. See, if you remember, even with Moses, the truth was this. It was God's presence and God's strength that brought them success, not Moses. The same would be true with Joshua moving forward. And so God reiterates, here's my promises and here's my presence. But after that, he goes on to to require one thing of Joshua and the people. Look at what he told Joshua, verses 6 and 7. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left hand, that you may have good success wherever you go. What was God doing here? God was saying, here's what I want. Here's what I want from Joshua, and here's what I want from the people. I want courage, and I want complete obedience. He says, if you, these two things existed, God made it clear that they would have success wherever they went. In fact, we're going to see something shortly, folks. That's really what God is asking from us. God is asking from us our complete obedience to Him. Now, now that I've laid a little groundwork, let's skip ahead to chapter five. As I said, they were facing uncertainty, a bit, but God gave Joshua and the people every reason to move forward with confidence. But what still lay before them was the actual taking of the land. One problem that they faced was this, that the land was already occupied. And not only occupied, but occupied by strong, cruel people. The first real test for the Israelites was going to be the city of Jericho, And one thing that made Jericho so imposing was that it was fortified by a wall that seemed to be impenetrable. This wall of Jericho was so, so thick, it was said that two chariots could pass each other on top of the wall. So this wasn't a tiny little wall. This was a big, thick wall. And it looked like there's no way that it could be overcome. Overtaking Jericho was not going to be a small obstacle for the people of Israel, but a huge obstacle. So as they approached Jericho... We read an interesting account that Joshua has. Look at this encounter, chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now now get the picture real quick. All right, Joshua here is by, is by Jericho. Now, whether he is standing by the wall looking up at this imposing wall, or whether he was a little bit away from the city, kind of just looking over the landscape and look what lay before him, we're not sure. But here's what the scripture says that he lifted his eyes up, and when he lifted his eyes up, he looked at Jericho and he saw a man standing before him with a sword drawn. Now, I'm not sure about you, but at that moment, I would probably get a little tense. What do you think? I mean, I know I'm about to lead my people into their first real battle and it's against an overwhelming fortified city and I'm suddenly face to face with a man who has a drawn sword. I don't believe at this moment I'm going to be filled with warm and fuzzies. How about you? No, no. I-, I would probably be drawing my sword at that moment and preparing for battle. I'm, I'm pulling out. I'm saying, oh, you ready to fight? Let's go. But what is interesting is Joshua didn't say he pulled his sword. It said he went to the man and he asked him a question. He said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? In other words, he asked the question, whose side are you on? I guess a very relevant question for Joshua in that moment, don't you think? But here's what I know. It's definitely a question that is posed to us all the time. I think, you know, if you want to think about something for a moment, don't you get asked that question all the time? And if not, you ask that question often, do you not? Yes and yes. Let me help you understand what I'm saying. We don't ask it to a person holding a sword in front of us, but we ask it like this. Are you ready? Are you a Republican? Or are you a Democrat? Are you a Black Lives Matter or are you a Blue Lives Matter? Are you a wear-a-mask person or are you a don't-wear-a-mask person? Are you a Calvinist or non-Calvinist? Are you a Cardinals fan or a Cats fan? That's one we really want to know, right? This is just some of the ways we ask the question, but we ask it all the time. And quite frankly, we get asked it all the time. And what people are asking in that question is the same thing Joshua was asking. Are you for me or are you against me? What people want to know is this, are you on my side or not? Isn't that what we're asking? What is very interesting is the answer that this man gave to Joshua. Uh, Look at what he said in verse 14, and he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now I hope you caught that. Did you catch this? Joshua asked a question. Here was the question that Joshua asked. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, no. I don't remember that being an option, right? But the man said no. And therein lies the problem. Joshua at the moment had the wrong focus. He was focusing on himself himself when his focus should have been on the Lord. Notice here, the man identifies himself. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. The point that being is made right here, it was, which, it was the right side of what was getting ready to happen at Jericho it wasn't about being on Joshua's side or it wasn't about being on the adversary's side. The right side to be on was the side of the Lord. You see, theologians agree that this man was most likely one or two, of two people Either this is a momentary descent of God himself into visibility, all right, in other words, the Father revealing himself visibly, or this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, all right, or in other words, the Son here appearing in this moment. Now, I'm not gonna get into the battle of which of those is true. Was this the father making a momentary appearance or was the son in this moment? Because I don't think it matters. Ultimately, this is what we see. It is the Lord who was standing in front of Joshua. He was appearing to him and he was asking a question. He's wanting Joshua to know something, really. Joshua, not am I on your side or on Jericho's side. The question is, are you on my side? You see, what's important for us to remember is this. The Israelites themselves and Joshua were not, imp, were, not imp, or they were not perfect people. They were imperfect people. They had their flaws. They were never always right. They had their failures. They were right, though, hear me, when they were doing what God wanted and not what they wanted to do. I believe we'd all be better off today as people, and especially Christians, if we would stop battling to get people to be into our camps and our neat little boxes and on our side. And instead, seek to be people who are on the Lord's side because the Lord's side is always right. Thank you. Finally, all right, even in the first service, that should have been a huge amen, but hardly anybody, all right? See, and remember, whatever side you're on this morning, I'm going to hit all of y'all. No matter what side you're on this morning, you, you, you need to know, okay, that, that most likely there are going to be times when you get things wrong because your side is full of imperfect people. Therefore, in polarizing times such as the one we are currently living in, it's more important than ever that we make the Lord our focus. Let the things that unite us in Jesus Christ be more important than the things that divide us, which are often no more than our preferences, our thoughts, and our wants. And Joshua, in fact, shows us the right response. Look at what he says. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, "'What does my Lord say to his servant?'' What does Joshua show us? What we really need to do is to fully surrender to the Lord and ask, what does my Lord say to his servant? In other words, all right, we need to ask, God, what do you want from me? And God, whatever it is, I'm willing to do. And God, whatever it is, I'm willing to be obedient to you. And let what we do begin in that moment to worship the Lord, recognizing his holiness, Now, we know this is the right perspective because of what God said to Joshua next. He says, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, I hope you recognize these words. Do you recognize these words? These are basically the same words that God said to Moses when he spoke to him from the burning bush. There is no doubt that if we are going to do the Lord's will, we must first recognize his holiness and worship him, surrendering completely to his will. Now, if you get to the place where you are worshiping the Lord and surrendering to his will, then here's what you'll discover. That God does work in unexpected ways. In fact, the first thing we're going to see is this, that God wins with improbable plans. Maybe you are familiar with this, but let me remind you the plan that God gave to Joshua for defeating the city of Jericho. Here's how it reads, Joshua 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, "'See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days.'" Seven priests shall bear trumpet, seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, folks, I don't believe that you're going to see this plan on any military strategist board. March around the city once for six days blowing a trumpet. Then on the seventh day, march around seven times, have the priest blow the trumpet, and then give a long blast, have everyone shout. That seems to me like a plan more for failure than success. How about you? It does, right? However, when the people do as God had planned, everything went just as God had said. The walls fell, and the Israelites had victory over Jericho. Now, we might wonder this. Well, why did God do it this way? It was to make a huge point. Hear me. Our real battles are spiritual. Our real battles are not won by our strength, but by the Lord's. Understand this as the Israelites were being given the promised land by God, it was about God establishing a people who worshiped Him and followed Him. It was about God establishing a people who would bless the whole world and help others come to know Him. The people already in the promised land that were being overthrown were pagan people who were cruel, who did not know God, who did not worship God, and were opposed to God. And so the issue wasn't about the survival of the fittest. It was about the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. Therefore, victory was only going to come for the Israelites by the hand of God, so that God's name would be magnified and that people would fear him, so that people would look and say, Only God could do that. Only God could bring victory in that way. Only God could do something so crazy. Think about how this truth still exists today. Because if you don't know it, God's plans are still unbroken. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Hear me. Our greatest battle is a spiritual battle, and it's against sin. And how do we win the battle? It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And think about this. If you and I were to come up with a plan about how to overcome sin, we'd say something like this. Well... If I just go out and do enough good things, then I'll do enough good things to make up all the bad things, and so my sin will be overcome by all the good things that I do. Or we might come up with a plan that says something like this. Well, I've done some bad things, and so if I suffer for those bad things, if I suffer enough for the bad things, that'll make up for the bad things that I did. I will have paid the penalty for that, and so that seems like a good plan. Those are some of the ways we would come up or something like that. However, God's way is different. God's way is an improbable plan. God's way is Jesus, the perfect, sinless lamb of God, suffering and dying on a cross in your place, in my place. Dying so that all who who, who are suffering from sin can have sin defeated by their faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. That is an improbable plan to us. It is a crazy plan to us. But it is God's path to victory. And God's plan that he demonstrated at Jericho is God's unbroken plan still to this day. His plan for us, you ready, is to place our faith in him for victory. And if we place our faith in him for victory and surrender his plan, victory indeed will come. Now, with that said, though, you need to know that not only does God win with improbable plans, he also works through unlikely people. In the midst of Jericho being defeated, we read about a woman named Rahab. And here's what we read about her in Joshua 6. But to the men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belongs to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, here is the Israelites conquering the city of Jericho by the hand of God. And look at this. And the only family that is saved from destruction is the family of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, you would think this. You would think that if you were going to spare any life in this moment, it wouldn't be the life of a prostitute, would it? If I were gonna spare any life in this moment, if it was me, I would say, I'm going into Jericho and I'm gonna try to find the most righteous people and whoever's living the most righteous life, that's the person I'm gonna save. Or if it's not that, I'm gonna at least, fi- I'm gonna at least find somebody prominent and I'm gonna save somebody who's prominent in Jericho. Isn't that what you would do? I mean, surely it wouldn't be a prostitute, right? Well, why then a prostitute? Because this prostitute had expressed faith in God and helped the spies when they initially went and spied out the city. If you don't know the actions of Rahab, go back to Joshua 2. And you can read about how she hid the Israelite spied, how she helped them escape the city so they might go back to give a report to Joshua about Jericho. And what I want to see about her actions this morning, though, were her words... To the spies, and listen to what she said to them in Joshua chapter 2. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, look at this, you ready? For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives. From death. Now, I hope you see what's going on here. Rahab is in this moment expressing her faith and trust in God. She had heard what God had done. And she declared in this moment that she knew God was the only true God, that he was the God of heaven and that he was the God of the earth. And so she was saying, I understand that. And she said, in this moment, here's what I understand. There is only one way that I can be saved from destruction, and that way is placing my life in the hands of God for him to deliver me. And so what happened in this moment, as she placed her faith in him, God honored that faith. And if you say, well, Brother Scott, I think you're stretching this. She was just afraid of her life, and she was grabbing at straws. This is my only hope. No, no, I'm gonna here to tell you. She was rescued because of her faith. And how do I know that? I will say that with 100% confidence, and here's why. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven thirty one, 31, you ready? By, read it, by faith. One more time, by faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, it was her faith that was key. It was her faith that prompted her to do what she did. It was her faith that God honored. And it was because of her faith that she helped the spies. And it was her faith that allowed her to be used by God. She was surely the most unlikely of all people in Jericho to be used by God, but God used her because of her faith. Now, how greatly was Rahab used by God? Let me tell you how, so, how greatly she was used. When you get to Matthew chapter 1, as you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, guess who is listed there? Rahab. Rahab was so greatly used of God that she became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ and she helped declare to the world that by faith, that by faith all can come to know God and to be used of him. In fact, let's remember that God is still working through the most unlikely of people. His plans are unbroken. In First Corinthians 1, it says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. I guess I'm calling some of you foolish this morning, right? You'll forgive me. All right, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, in other words, God has chosen us who are the most unlikely to be used so that his name gets praise. You see, as an example of this truth, I recently have been reading a couple of books, one by a man named Rob Gallaty. Rob at one time was hooked on drugs. For three years, he battled a drug addiction that ravaged his life. He had $180 a day heroin and cocaine addiction, and it forced him to steal $15,000 from his parents. After living without gas, electricity, and water for months, losing eight of his friends to drug-related deaths, watching six friends arrested, and completing two rehab treatments... Rob remembered the gospel that was shared with him by a friend in college, and he was radically saved on November the 12th, 2002, when he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now Rob is not only a pastor of a very large church, but he is also helping churches everywhere understand the need and the process of making true disciples for Jesus Christ. His book, Replicate, is helping many churches understand the need to change their focus and truly help people mature in their faith, not just be baptized and say, we're finished with you. We've made it to the finish line through baptism. I guarantee people would have looked at Rob at one time and said, there's no way God could use him. He's a heroin addict. He's a cocaine addict. There's no way he's ever going to do anything for God. But listen, God sometimes used the most unlikely people to do the greatest things for his glory. There's another I want to mention. Her name is Rachel Gilson. She began college at Yale University, and when she started at Yale University, she started there as an atheist and a practicing lesbian. However, after searching for truth, she found faith in Jesus Christ and eventually even found freedom from her homosexual lifestyle. She now serves on staff with Crew, which is formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, and has written a book entitled Born Again This Way, which seeks to give biblical guidance to those struggling with same-sex attraction and to give insight to those ministering to those struggling." God is using her in mighty ways to help people find faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that the time people who knew her would have looked at her and said, there's no way God's gonna work through her. She doesn't even believe that God exists. And not only does she not believe that God exists, she is living such an immoral lifestyle, there's no way that God could use her. But God had improbable, in, an improbable victory in her life because she found faith in Jesus on Yale University, one of the most liberal universities there are. But she found Jesus there and God delivered her and now is using her in powerful way because God still works through unlikely people. Now I share these in part to let everyone here know something. You ready? I want you to know there is no one no one out of the reach of God. You may look at people and say, there's no way God could use that person. No way God's gonna ever do anything in their life. But I'm here to tell you, God can take what you see is the most unlikely of person and he can win an improbable victory in their lives. No person is out of the grasp of our mighty God. But then second, I wanna say this. Some of you this morning think God can't use you. But I want you to know this. There's no one here this morning that God can't use to do great things for his glory. If you'll give your life to the hands of God, he can do great things for you. Here in Joshua, Rahab surely shows us that God works through the most unlikely. God's going to give these improbable victories. God can do that. But but there's one thing that we have to see if this is ultimately going to happen in your life and the life of others. Because we need to know this morning that God is calling for us to have an uncommon commitment in life. He is calling for us to have complete commitment to him as we talk about how God wins with improbable plans, how he works through unlikely people, some people take the attitude that says, well, it doesn't matter then what I do because God's going to simply do what he wants. But here's what we need to know. God surely works in improbable plans and unlikely people, but he calls us to uncommon commitment. Let's remember what God told Joshua, the one who would help lead the Israelites Through God's improbable plan, this is what he told Joshua, chapter 1, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Look at this. Being careful to do according to all the laws that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Joshua was called to complete surrender. God was going to work, but for Joshua to experience the blessing of that, God called for him and the Israelites to completely, not partially, obey God. They were to be careful to do all that had been commanded. In fact, to illustrate the importance of God's call to uncommon commitment, all you have to do is read a little further in Joshua. In Joshua 6, the Israelites experienced this improbable victory over what seemed like an invincible city. And so after this, the next city is Ai. And the spies sent to this city come back with a report. And I'm gonna paraphrase Paraphrase their report about AI. They're chumps. Okay, they're nothing. I mean, they're such pushovers. We only need to send part of our army down there to defeat them because this is going to be so easy. I mean, just, I mean, we, all we probably have to do is show up and we're going to win. But what happens? The Israelites go to AI and suffer an improbable defeat. This really doesn't make sense to us. How could they suffer such a humiliating defeat? I mean, they just feed, defeated Jericho in an amazing way. How could they now suffer defeat? Well, there were two problems. You ready what they are? Here's number one is this. They never asked God what he wanted them to do. They never stopped and said, God, do you want us to go to AI? Do you want us to go down there and fight them? They never stopped and asked. The problem two, they hadn't been completely obedient in Jericho. What do I mean? Listen to Joshua 7.1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Camry, son of Zabdib, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. God had made it clear to the people, don't you take any of those things. But what did Achan do? He disobeyed God. And Achan failed to do completely what God had asked. And as a result, Israel suffered the defeat at the hands of an inferior foe. Now, after the sin was recognized and dealt with, Israel defeats Ai as they move forward in the way God intended. And I'm not going to spend much time here this morning, but simply I need to say this, that if you want God to use you in improbable ways, even though you might be of most unlikely of people, then you must completely surrender to his will, even when it seems improbable or unlikely. Remember a couple of things Jesus said. Jesus said, as you make disciples, you are to teach them to observe some of the things that have been commanded. He says, you're, you're, no, 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 you're, 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 to, you're to teach them to observe most of the things that have been commanded. No, you know, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, we are called to follow Jesus and then to follow the things that we're, we're not called to follow Jesus and then just follow the things we like that Jesus said. We're not called to follow Jesus and then follow the the things that are easy that Jesus says. Listen, we are called to follow Jesus and obey all that he said and all that he commanded. And one of the things that he said was this in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And let's remember, this is a call to daily take up your cross and follow him. Hear me, you cannot rest on the victories and laurels of yesterday. God calls for complete obedience every day. If not, you could be like Israel, finding victory in an improbable way today, but defeat in an improbable way tomorrow. You need to daily follow him. That is uncommon commitment that we are called to. Because, hear me, most people live for the moment and they live for themselves. And God is saying to all who will hear his call and by faith choose to live for Jesus Come to me, and I will work in and through you in unexpected ways when you surrender your life to Jesus in that way, even when things are uncertain, all right, and you can have confidence and peace as you move forward into the future. In fact, I want to close with this. You ready? I'm going to close with this. My daughter-in-law, Courtney, has been trained in working as a nurse. She had had the plan of going to school and becoming a nurse practitioner, However, her plans have changed. Something that took us by surprise was her decision to not go to grad school to become a nurse practitioner, but instead to go to grad school to become an elementary teacher. The reason that she feels like this is what God wants her to do. That the other that she was pursuing was more felt like what she felt like she needed to do for her family or what others had put their expectations on her about that. And she says, no, that's not what's in my heart. This is what I say to her as I would say to any other. If teaching is the dream and the burden that God has placed on your heart, then you do what God is leading you to do, even if others say, why would you quit nursing to teach? Right? It doesn't make sense to give up that salary and go into a profession that is often underappreciated, underpaid, and such hard work. Well, that may be so, but listen, you should always surrender to God. Completely, no matter what it means for your life. Do y'all hear me? Y'all didn't say too big of an amen to that. that, that. It's scary, right? It's scary. For you who are listening to me today, I'm not sure what God is wanting to do in your life. Here's what I know it is for some. For some this morning, he is asking you to surrender to Jesus as your Savior. And let's be honest, if you do that, there are going to be people who look at you and say, that's crazy. They're going to look at you and say, well, Jesus, that's all just a figment of somebody's imagination. He's not real. That religion stuff, you know, why would you fall for that lie? They're going to tell you it's crazy. Well, let's just remember the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who's being saved, it is the power of God. And I know this morning the world may look at what Jesus did on that cross and say it's foolish. They may look at it and say it's crazy, but it's God's improbable victory. That's his plan. And I want you to know today God's calling some of you to give your life to Jesus. And if that's you, I would encourage you today. Would you completely surrender to him? He is just simply waiting for your faith. And if you'll come to Jesus by faith, he will forgive you of sin. He will give you a new life. And who knows what he might do with you in the future. And there's some of you this morning that you're wrestling with God's improbable plan of your life because you're looking and saying, you know, I'm the most unlikely of people that God could use, but he's calling you. I'm encouraging you today to surrender whatever that is. Maybe today he's calling you to surrender to ministry. I would say today, if that's you, surrender your all today. Maybe he's calling you to be a missionary across the nation or maybe even across the ocean. And you would say, it's crazy. Why would I do that? Why would I move to a foreign land? Why would I move to another city? Why would I do anything like that? Well, if God's called you to do it, it's not crazy. If he's calling you, I would say today, surrender to his will today. Maybe he's calling you to be a stay-at-home mom. And you say, well, how can I give up that salary? My family seems to need this salary. How can I do that? Well, I'm here to tell you, if God's calling you to be a stay-home mom, you be a stay-home mom and God will help provide for your family. Maybe God's calling you today to foster kids or to adopt kids. Maybe it's to volunteer at Clarity or Mission Hope for Kids. Maybe it's to teach a life group. So many other things God may be calling you to do today. And you may be looking and saying, I'm the most unlikely a person to do this. I'm saying if that's your attitude, you're right where God wants you to. And all he is waiting for you to do is say, I surrender my all. And God will use you in powerful, mighty ways. God's waiting for some of you to simply surrender to his will and his plan for your life. And to see what he's going to do with you. In fact, we're going to come to a time of invitation, and here's what I want to ask you today. Are you willing to say to God, I surrender all? Whether, again, it's this morning for the first time to come and say, God, I, I surrender to your plan of salvation. I come today and surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want to invite him to come into my life and to forgive me of my sin and give me eternal life. If that's you today, I encourage you during this moment to come. Give your life to Jesus. I'll be down front. I will greet you. I would love to talk with you. If you don't know how, how you give your life to Jesus, he's waiting for you today. Or some of you maybe need to come to this altar and you need to pray because you're struggling with a situation. And you don't know what to do. Maybe not come. Why not come and kneel at this altar and say, God, I surrender all to you, whatever it is. And Father, you make it clear and I'll follow and I'll guarantee you that if you'll listen, God will eventually make it clear, his will for your life. And all he's waiting for you to do is say, I surrender. And God will use you in mighty and powerful ways for his glory. Would you pray with me this morning, Father? We thank you that you are a God who works in ways that are not our ways. are ways that we see as improbable and, and, and in people that, and that we look and say are unlikely people. And so, Father, today as we come to this invitation, my true prayer this morning is that we would come... And we would make an uncommon commitment to you. That we would truly come and say, I surrender all. And that daily we'd be willing to take up our cross and follow you. Whatever that means. So in this moment, Father, I'm just simply asking that you speak with life. Speak to them. Speak to hearts. There's some here today that I know they've been struggling. And they've been on the edge. And today I pray that they'll give it up to you. That today they truly will say, I surrender my all. And Father, just then watch what you do in their life. And help us as a church to be a church that supports those people who surrender, that we'll be here to help them understand what you're doing in their life and help them be, you know, be supported in that, be equipped in that, help us to be that kind of church. But Father, this morning, again, I just simply pray that you'll help people surrender their all to you today. So Father, speak. We're listening this morning. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.